0: Unlike Bob, in high school, I was known as a nice guy. In high school, I was a nice guy, kind of short, not very athletic. I know, shocking to some of you. Somewhat geeky, again, shocking, but dependable, consistent, nice. In freshman year, I had a crush on Amy. Amy was also kind of short, not very athletic, somewhat geeky on the A honor roll, and... Nice. And I thought it would be nice if a nice Christian guy and a nice Christian girl could get together. And so I wanted her to be my girlfriend. Now, this was before cell phones and Facebook and all of that stuff that just complicates life. Back then, we did relationships the real way, the personal way. In third period during gym class, I picked out a mutual friend, Cammy. And I... Motion for Cammy to come over. And I said, "Cammy, I really like Amy. Do you think she likes me? Like, I think I would really like it if she would be my girlfriend. Do you think she would be interested? Do you? And then, based on Cammy's response, launched the invite. Would you ask her if she would be my girlfriend? Off Cammy goes. What? what? This is how it worked. And so Cammy talked to Amy. I don't know what they discussed. I don't know if Cammy went over and goes, you're not going to believe this. Or if it was like... Oh my gosh. Oh! I don't know. I was too scared to look. And so they had their conversation and Cammy came back and then Cammy relayed the message. Um uh No. Yeah, I know. And I just want to go back and say, didn't you know Max Vanderpool that nice guys finish? Yeah, you know that too, don't you? Why, why is it our culture is filled with people who want to be nice? Why is our culture filled with people who feel that they have a social or even religious responsibility to be nice? Why do we do this? If you have a teenager at home who is physically developed, the hormones are raging... You've probably sat them down and said some version of, I don't want you to date ever. In fact, if it were legal, I would chain you to the pipes in the basement. (laughs) But since by law, I cannot. If, God forbid, you should want to date someone, I'd like you to date a nice Christian young man or a nice Christian Girl, why do we use that word that is so vague? Don't you really, mom or dad, when you're saying that? Don't you mean this? I want you to date someone who is morally pure. In fact, their river is so pure, God from heaven looks down on it and sees his reflection. I want you to date someone who understands authority and understands that I'm in authority over you and they respect my decisions. Why? Because they understand authority structures. Isn't that what you really mean? Stuff like that. Hello, moms and dads, are you alive? Is this not sitting with you? I know, some of the teenagers are like, drat! Okay? But we use this word, nice, dated nice, Christian. Now, if you have children under the age of five living in your house, I bet you tell them frequently, be nice, play nice. Let's say your sister or your sister-in-law is coming over and she's bringing her kids And then her kids are there and your child. And before you send them off, you look at your child, don't you? And you say, be nice. Don't you really mean? Come here, come here. I want you to go to your room and I want you to take all of your toys and divide them in half. You will have half and they will have half. And they will get to play with your toys indefinitely and you will be happy about it. They'll probably cry at that point. But isn't that more what we mean when we say, you know, be nice? Again, why do we use a word that, that seems to have no real meaning to it? Today, I want to look at the commonly held myth. Yes, that's right. Myth that God wants you to be nice or that even Jesus himself was a nice guy. And to do that, I want to peer into the Gospel of Mark. Mark is one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. And we're going to look at a couple of events that happened after Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. It's called his, uh, that was called his triumphal entry. But Jesus, in selecting the donkey, was communicating loud and clear to everybody, Yep, I'm the one, the one you've been waiting for, the one you all talk about, the one the prophets were, yep, me, I'm him. Donkey, me on donkey. Hello, I'm it. Okay, so he rides in and he does that big triumphal entry and everybody's like, man, Caesar, king, make him king. Let's go. Let's get this show on the road. And they're all excited. And, and then a couple of very interesting things happen after that. And that's in verse 12. The next morning, so the day after the big party, the triumphal entry, Jesus stayed a little out of town in a little village called Bethany with some friends Uh, at a friend's parents' house. Okay, so the next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. That's kind of harsh, Jesus. And the disciples heard him say that. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple. And began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you've turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and his disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, that fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Here's two things that Mark includes together that happened After the big triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And Mark, sorry, Mark is wanting you and I to pick up on some things. And these two accounts are the same thing. And I want you to see that they're connected. Um, Now, sometimes uh, you'll hear teachings on the clearing of the temple or the cleansing of the temple. And you'll hear preachers talk about that the Lord was angry. But it was a holy anger, not like your anger and my anger. And then they kind of tell you not to be angry. I don't think so. <laughs> Jesus was angry. And uh, I don't think it was a holy anger any more than if he went to the bathroom, it was a holy bathroom break. I mean, it was anger. There it was. Okay. And so these two these two things are connected. And they're connected because Jesus cursing the fig tree and Jesus driving people out of the temple ...are kind of the same thing. And the problem is fruitlessness. He, he stops by the fig tree. It's got leaves. It gives the illusion that there's fruit. He's hungry. Gets up close. Nothing. Same thing with the temple. The temple is supposed to be a fruitful place. A place where God's presence is experienced. Where people are in prayer before God's presence where there's holiness, where there's sacrifice, where God's redemption is kind of amplified in a giant spotlight. And it's not. It has the illusion of those things. But all that's really going on are the mechanics of selling and changing and going through the motions. And so the problem with the fig tree and the problem with the temple is that both of them are barren. Both of them are fruitless. And and you'll sometimes you'll hear preachers and they'll talk about, well, the cleansing of the temple was to make it fit for service. I disagree with that. And so for some of you that are scholars, you can, go, you can Google me later, send me emails. I'd love to have a discussion about it. But Here's, here's my read. And, and yes, commentators agree with me, so don't worry. You're not getting total sacrilegious stuff. But um, why would Jesus cleanse a temple to make it fit for service? when a few hours later, he's going to be nailed to the cross and his death is going to render everything that goes on in that temple no longer necessary. In Hebrews, it talks about his death as the once for all sacrifice. So why would you go, why would you do something to make it work right when it's not going to work in literally a day or two? And it's no longer going to be necessary. You wouldn't. Who would do that? And so, no, these two things are really the same thing. Jesus was pronouncing judgment, and it's a clear pronouncement of judgment. No fruit in the Bible consistently, cover to cover, brings on judgment. Fruitlessness is a cause that gets God's dander up, so to speak. And and so I think a more appropriate title for this section, Jesus Clears the Temple, would be The Uselessness of the Temple. I think that better describes what's going on. By driving out the merchants and all the people, Jesus made a stop to everything. I mean, he stopped what was going on because in his mind, this is useless. You're not doing the very thing that it's supposed to be doing. There's no fruit. And so uh, it's, it's judgment that's kind of playing out. And the Pharisees got that, which is why in verse 18 it says this, when the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, what did they do? They start making plans to kill him. This guy has got to go. I don't care how popular it is. I don't care how his messages are. I forget about the miracles. This guy is now a threat. He has more or less communicated to everybody that the very thing that's supposed to be going on in the temple is not going on in the temple. No, kill him. And they, they begin to develop this plot. They were afraid of Jesus, I think, for some very good reasons. One, he was immensely popular. The scripture says that outright. But also, he was a threat to the established order. Anytime that Jesus is interfacing with the God squad, he's making pronouncements of judgment, the story of the evil farmers. I mean, he he weaves parables. Sometimes he outright says it. You know, (laughs) you guys say that you're clean cups, but you're filthy on the inside. His teaching is rife with judgment pronouncements on the God squad. And so... At this point, they've had enough. And the other thing about Jesus is his teaching advocated something new and different. It was a revolution of the heart. It was a new order. It was God's kingdom established in a way that it hadn't been before. And so Jesus is a threat to the people in power, which is why uh, his trial and arrest and all of that stuff in my mind makes sense. Who arrests and nails to a cross a nice guy? Nice guys aren't arrested and nailed to crosses. Why? Because they're nice guys. Nice guys roll over at the end of the day, don't they? Not Jesus. At the end of the day, he was clear about what he stood for. And even within the context of getting arrested and being nailed to the cross, Jesus makes these statements where he says, Hey, look, I could call down 10,000 angels if I want. Nuke the planet that you're on. I'm only, you're only getting away with this because I'm letting you. That speaks to Jesus' power and authority that he sets aside to die. Okay, so there's a lot going on in this passage. And I think you and I and a lot of people tend to miss the symbolism. The fig tree was fruitless. The temple was fruitless. In God's economy, from cover to cover, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter what you're reading, fruitlessness is always something deserving of God's judgment. Always. And so in the Gospels, we see a Jesus, I think who yes is compassionate we see a jesus who's powerful who's charismatic who's different who's confident and who's a very real threat to the way the world works and the way the world order wants things to work which is why they try and kill him All right when jesus returns by the way john and his book of revelation this dream that the holy spirit gives him about the end times when jesus comes back he's riding a horse he's wearing a robe dipped in blood and an army ready for battle is following him now whether that's literal or literal or not one thing is clear this is not jesus meek and mild lowly in a manger right the imagery is that of you know power war i mean kingship okay so Uh, Let me ask a question, and here's a question that I ask myself from time to time. Is the power and weight of my life compelling to those around me, to those that know me? Are the choices that I've made, the person that I'm becoming, enough that it causes some people to take stock of the choices they're making and the people they're becoming, or am I just a nice guy? At the end of the day, I don't want to be a nice guy. I don't want to have my funeral filled with people. Oh, Max, he was just a nice guy. Why? Because nice guys finish what? Last. So let me give some homework in light of this passage. And I know for some of you, this might be the first time that you're hearing this. And, and if you grew up in the church or the Christian background, there may be part of you that's like, oh, I think you're off the wall there, preacher. Well, you know, <laughs> let's talk about it. Call me. I'd love to have coffee with you. But this passage, this, these two things that Jesus did are in the gospel for a reason. And it's not that he had holy anger that you and I can never have. It's that Jesus had the power of conviction. And when something was wrong, he said, that's wrong. And he let the chips fall where they may. That's not a nice guy. Nice guys let you get away with stuff. All right? So if you're a parent today, I want to make a plea to you. Please, please stop telling your kids to be nice. Stop it. Stop it. Don't tell your kids to be nice anymore. And you're like, what? Yes. I, if you don't know what to say, fall back on the golden rule. Treat your brother the way you want to be treated. Boom. There it is. There's clarity. But don't tell them to be nice. Nice is vague. Nice is sometimes rolling over when you shouldn't roll over. Nice, our culture has a definition of nice. And I don't think it's one that squares with who Jesus is and who God wants us to be. So stop telling your kids to be nice. Um, Now, men, I want to speak to you specifically. If you've got sons, part of your job as a man is to help your sons know when it's right to stand up. To stand up for what's right, to speak up, to be an advocate, and to more or less do what Jesus did right here in this passage. Um, And there's a lot of women, trust me, culturally, who are long and wait for the day for their man to be that stand-up guy. It's standing up for them and standing up for, you know, what's going on in their lives. Okay, so that's part of our responsibility for the rest of us. uh, We're constantly told in Scripture to defend the cause of the widows and orphans. We're commanded, in a sense, to be an advocate. James puts it this way. He says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. It means being an advocate, standing up, speaking out. When things are wrong, which means at times you and I are not going to be very nice. That's okay. Jesus himself said, look, if you're going to follow me and be like me, you're going to upset some people. Some people are going to hate you. In fact, they're going to lobby accusations at you. They might even haul your keister into court. Why? Because you're just being like me. You can't expect to be treated any better than I was treated. So here's a question that I would pose to us as a family of faith. Where in your circles might God be prompting you to stand up or to speak out or to turn over some tables? I know it's not a question that normally gets raised in church, right? Because aren't Christians supposed to be meek and mild? Well, that's what the world would like. But again, part of our responsibility is to call sin, sin. Um, And so... Some people, I know, some people are going to object and they're going to say, well, aren't, isn't the big thing, foundational thing, grace? Well, yeah, grace is part of it. John says that Jesus came full of grace and what? Grace and truth. And the two are linked. And, yeah, grace should come first and we should be gracious people. But when push comes to shove, when it comes to calling sin, sin, when it comes to standing up for those who are oppressed, et cetera, Boom, there's truth with a capital T. Jesus didn't uh, abandon or, or shove truth off to the, uh, just for the sole spotlight of grace. They both came together, and grace precedes truth. Um, ask Dietrich Bonhoeffer how that works. I was first exposed to this German pastor in seminary. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who lived uh, in Germany uh, prior to World War II. Uh, uh, he had the bulk of his ministry in 1930s Germany. So if you know your history, you know some big things are happening in Germany in the 1930s. A guy by the name of Adolf Hitler comes to power, and his party sweeps the elections, and he's made chancellor and then, like, emperor for life or something like that. And Bonhoeffer was part of a very smaller group of Christians who... They heard rumors. You know, people heard things. The Jews are disappearing. I think they're going to place it. You know, and and there was kind of a collective denial about it. No, that would never. We would not do it. I mean, that's that's impossible. That's just crazy talk. But it was happening. And and some of the other things that Hitler did caused Bonhoeffer to go. Mm, I don't think so. And so in 1935, he and a group of uh, pastors uh, formed, made this declaration called the Barman Declaration, and they formed what became later known as the Confessing Church because they believed part of the responsibility of the church was to go, Hitler, bad. I know, you know, those of us who have the benefit of being on the other side of history would go, well, duh, but not everybody in the moment was feeling it. Not everybody in the moment was thinking Hitler was bad, okay? This is what um, Edwin, Irwin. Imagine your first name is Erwin. Erwin Lutzer. All right. Erwin Lutzer wrote this about his experience uh, in Germany, and this is what he said: "I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it, because what could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance and the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized it was carrying Jews like cattle. Week after week, the whistle would blow, and we decided, uh, we dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew we could hear the cries of Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang even more loudly, so we couldn't hear them. Years have passed, and no one talks about it anymore, but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God forgive me, and forgive all of us who call ourselves Christians, yet did nothing to intervene. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer not only was part of the Confessing Church, but good or bad, he got himself involved in some plots to assassinate Hitler. The the Gestapo didn't know that at the time, but they arrested him because he was a pastor saying the things that he was saying. And so he was arrested, he was thrown in prison, and in April of 1945, he was hanged because he stood up and said, Hitler, bad. This stuff that's going on, wrong. Wrong. And he was hanged for it. Two weeks later, American G.I.s came through and liberated the camp where he was held prisoner. Now, I'm not telling you I want you to get yourself arrested or hanged. But I do want you to stand up for things that need to be stood up for. And I think, I'm not saying America is Nazi Germany, far from it, okay? This is land of the free, home of the brave. But there are going to be times and moments, aren't there, in your circles where push comes to shove, you've got to take a stand for something. Don't be a nice guy and just roll over. And this is a Mr. Mercy saying that to you. That's my default setting. My default setting is to go, it's okay, you're okay, we're all okay, we'll just kind of gloss over that stuff. It'll all come out in the end, okay. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Stop being nice all the time. Make it your goal to be more like Jesus. And Jesus, when push came to shove, had the courage and the conviction to go, that's wrong, and let the chips fall where they may. I want to pray a prayer of courage for you and me.